All right, hello everyone. Glad to be with you and to be uh, talking more about one of the core uh, solas. I was talking about, uh, I'm aware last week you were looking at uh, in Christ alone. And today we're talking about in faith alone or by faith alone. And the question is, what is by faith alone? What are we talking about when we're talking about by faith alone? And here we're talking about justification by faith alone. We'll get deeper into this to just understand it a bit more. What, is it, what does it mean? And what does it mean that it's justification by faith alone? But it's maybe, you know, one of the things that it's good to recognize from the outside that this is one of the core, one of the most important uh, doctrines that the Reformers uh, talked about and wrote about. It was, this is one of the main things that led to many being executed and excommunicated and killed. Uh, it was such a, an important topic that many were ready to die for it. Uh, we have the words of um, two prominent reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin here, just trying to stress the importance and the, val the, the value of this. Uh, Martin Luther says, the article of justification is the master and the prince, the lord and ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrine. It preserves and governs all church doctrine and raises up our conscience before God. Without this article, the world is utter death and darkness. Uh, John Calvin had something similar to say about the importance of the doctrine of justification. He said, the doctrine of justification is the principal ground on which religion must be supported. So it requires greater care and attention. For unless you understand, first of all, what your position is before God and what the judgment is which he passes upon you, you have no foundation on which your salvation can be laid or on which pity, piety towards God can be, can be reared. So what the reformers are saying, this is the reason why this is so vital and so important because it governs our relationship and our stand towards God. Get this right and you're in a good, day, in a good relationship with God. Get it wrong and you're condemned and you don't have a chance to present even your case before God. Um, and this doctrine is so important because not only is it about our relationship with God, but because it governs and it relates to everything else that we understand about faith. It has to do with our uh, life of worship. It has to do with our piety, how we deal with others, uh, understanding and distinguishing good and uh, good teachings and, and, and wrong teaching. Uh, it was this issue that has impact on topics that the reformers fought over, things like the authority of the Pope, purgatory, the Mass, Mary, the sacraments. The justification of faith is not only not direct, may not be directly related to these things, but intersects with a lot of these topics. And if you have justification of faith right, understood correctly, then you can think holistically or more accurately about the other things. So what is justification? What do we really mean when we're talking about justification? Well, the language, I'm sure, is not very strange to us. The language is legal language. When we say a person is justified, it means that the person receives a legal judgment or declared to be just. That's language that we see in the court of law. You go to a case, you're indicted, you have your, somebody has charged you with a certain uh, case, you go to the court, and the judge there decides if you are uh, justified or not, if you're innocent or not. 
if you can walk away from the stand without being put in prison or paying any penalty or not. This is justification. It is legal statement that the judge declares about you. Uh, it has to do with our status before the judgment of God. When we're bringing this to the context of faith, what we're talking about is God being the judge. He is the person that's sitting on the ark of justice. He is the one that's going to make a statement. And the reason why this is relevant and important to all of us is because there's going to be a day when we're all going to stand before God and give an account for ourselves to justify or to try and justify ourselves before God. Uh, Acts 17, this is the Apostle Paul talking. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he, for he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So we see that God is, has reserved or has scheduled the day when everybody will stand before God young and old, man and woman, from every background, no exception, regardless what you've done. There's no, uh, you can't skip this. Everybody will stand before God and will have to give an account. And God at the end will gonna have a verdict to say if you're innocent or not, justified or not. The neat thing about this is that it doesn't have to be a surprise. Today, if you are charged with a certain offense, you go to the court, it's up to the jury to decide if you're going to be innocent, if you're going to walk away free or not. When faith, when we're standing before God, we don't have to wait till that point. We have the privilege and we have the, the blessing of, being, of knowing that we can be justified before God. And we'll get about that in a minute. But it's, this brings us such a relief and assurance to know that this doesn't have to be a fearsome, a scary time, but rather it's a time that we can celebrate because we're going to be declared justice by faith. The other thing to notice is how, who is bringing this judgment to pass? Paul talks about uh, setting a day, God setting a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So God who is bringing this justice, he is a righteous judge. We know that his judgment is going to be fair. Uh, there's not going to be any need to try and find uh, make a backroom deal with God or try and strike a different uh, judgment on this. Um, it's going to be a fair judgment because everybody's going to be treated and judged by the same standard, and that is Jesus Christ. So what exactly are we guilty of, right? We're talking about judgment and justification and court. What are we guilty of? Um, we all will stand before God because we're all sinners. Read with me Romans 3, verses 9 to 12. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Keep that open. We'll get back to it. So God is saying, or Paul is saying, that we are sinners. 
this is where we stand before God. This is, our, this is how God sees us. We are born in sin. Um, and we might, you might think that, you know, I do some good things and I'm not that bad. But we, from God's perspective, have been born in sin and all our hearts, everything that we can think of, everything that we know, is ultimately uh, disobedience or sin towards God. It's not enough for whatever good we do for, for it to justify us before God. Um, and, you know, at, at, on one hand, this is terrifying, but at the same time, we're, it's, it's, it's great because this is not the whole story. Paul is not saying that we can never be justified before God. It's not about denial of justification. Paul's what he's saying is that we cannot be justified by the deeds of the law. The law, which is God's command, which God has put in his word, is how God had revealed himself to people and had set as standards of righteousness. But he's saying that nobody can fully obey the standard of righteousness. And therefore, we're all sinners before God. So Paul does not exclude justification altogether. He doesn't, he's just excluding justification by works. Um, there's another word on how we get justified, and that's the good news. Uh, continue reading from verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement. Through faith in His blood, He did this to demonstrate His justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice as of the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So here Paul declares a way of justification different than justification by works. It is justification through faith in Jesus Christ. This justification is not available to everyone. Not everyone is automatically justified just because Christ has done his saving work on the cross. Rather, this justification is available to anyone who believes. It is provided only to those who believe. That's what Paul is trying to stress here. And it's not based on anything that we do. It's not based on partly what we do and partly what God does. It is based on the righteousness of God that he provides and what the believer believes in. It is given both freely and graciously by God through the redeeming work of Christ. This manner of justification demonstrates God to be both just and the justifier. So God, through the work of Jesus Christ, Jesus dying on the cross, have made that the means by which we have justification. The righteousness of Christ is transferred to us. How does that happen? How is a person justified? This is the question that the reformers uh, were debating about. This is the question that probably caused most of the controversy. How is a person justified? 
on what basis or grounds does God ever declare anyone just? If we're all sinners, if all our works are filthy rags, what makes a person justified? How does this come about? Must we first become just inherently before God will make such a declaration? Or does he declare us just before we are in ourselves just and that makes us just? Do we have to be just so that God can declare us just? Or because God declares us just, do we become just? The reformer's view is that we are considered justified because we've received the righteousness of Christ. We are declared righteous, considered righteous, considered righteous. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. We didn't produce it, but received it. What the reformers were insisting is that what we have in us, the righteousness that, we, we, that, we, that becomes ours, is not something that we can produce. It's not something that is intrinsic in us. It's not something that we can ever claim as our own. Rather, it's something that comes from God through Christ to us. It's something that we believe that we possess, that we, that we possess in terms of believing in it. Luther captured the idea of, of this in his famous fr phrase, at the same time, just and sinner. We are both just and sinner, justified and sinners before God. There's no contradiction here. We are sinners in that when we look at ourselves, when we look at our works, what we have done, what we do, our thoughts, our thinking, we are sinners. But as far as God's concerned, when we believe in Christ and in the work of Christ on the cross, His righteousness, Christ's righteousness is passed onto us, is imputed onto us, and that makes us righteous. So with one hand, we can say we're sinners and we're always sinners, but at the same time, we can say we're just or we're justified because of our faith in what Christ has done. To better appreciate this and to better understand why this was such a controversial issue, let's look at what the Roman Catholic Church believed and taught at the time. So Rome agrees that we're all born sinners. The sin of Adam is something that we have inherited. We are born sinners. Rome would not dispute that. Uh, but what they believe is, what they taught is that justification begins with baptism. Uh, that's why in, in the Roman Catholic tradition, there's infant baptism. The baptism is the instrumental cause of justification. It's the means by which a person can begin to have justification. By the sacraments, by baptism, the grace of Christ's righteousness is infused into the soul. And the person who is baptized at that point is free from their original, original sin. Uh, the person is, counted to be, is considered to be in a state of grace. In other words, for this few seconds, if a person, after a person is baptized, if he passes away or if a child dies after that, he is considered righteous and saved. Beyond that, the person must cooperate with the infused grace in order to become righteous. So it's not just, it's not sufficient for you to lose your original sin. It's you have to continue to cooperate with the grace that is from God. This grace of justification that you're found in after baptism, this state is not permanent. It's very possible to lose uh, this state uh, and pretty much everybody loses it and they lose it because of sin. And here again, Rome distinguishes between different sins there are sins that are considered not okay, but they're not deadly. They're not mortal. 
things like you know telling a white lie or or you know uh, forgetting you know you you say something um, unintentionally and and it's a bad word. Uh, those are not sins that cause you to lose your salvation or you lose your state of grace. But there are sins, there are mortal sins that can really cause you to lose that state of righteousness or that state of grace. And when that happens, the person who commits this must confess. They have to do a penance. They have to go to the priest. They have to confess their sin, receive forgiveness or absolution of sin. Uh, and after that, that's not where it ends, this person has to do works of satisfaction. They have to do something to continue to receive this justification. The works of satisfaction, they, they, when you accumulate those, they produce for the repentant sinner uh, merit. Uh, merit that causes God, not, he's not obliged to forgive you, but merit that allows that sort of God is inclined or more likely to forgive you or to give you righteousness because of it. Uh, these good works, these good things that you have to do uh, to gain, to regain this, your righteousness are things like giving alms or giving money to church or doing good works. Uh, this is how you maintain uh, your righteousness. And if you're wondering where this came from, this idea of penance and indulgences and why you have to do these things, it's helpful to consider slightly, a bit briefly, the background to this. In the 16th century, uh, Rome was embarked on a lot of building projects, huge building projects, churches and the likes, including the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome that is there right now. Um, and the church needed to pay for those things, and the Pope had offered indulgences to those who are willing to pay alms, to pay towards the church. And in the church, uh, in, in the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope can have a lot of merit, this, this merit that you get to get to, for God to forgive you. The Pope owned the keys, sort of, to this storage or to this treasury of merit, and, they, and he can pass them on to anyone that does the penance, that pays uh, towards the church. And this merit is something that the church accumulated from saints who did not need all the merit that they have. So it's a bit of sort of a complicated system all to say that the reason why this developed is because the church wanted to fund some projects uh, and through it they found that means to do that is by making people do things and by tying their salvation and their righteousness to that. So we see that Rome agreed that the merit of Christ is necessary for salvation. They didn't deny Christ. They said that you need Christ, that you need grace, you need justification. It's, it would be wrong to say that Rome believe in justification by merit, while the Protestants or the sort of evangelicals believe in justification by grace. That's inaccurate. You can't say that Rome believes in justification by works, while the Protestants believe in justification by faith. That's also inaccurate. The Roman Church believes that grace, faith, and Christ are all necessary for justification, but they're not sufficient. They're all necessary, but they're not sufficient. There are necessary conditions, but not sufficient. If you want to understand this sort of phrase, this logic of it, uh, here's an example. We can say that Joe, being a male, is an, Joe being a male, 
is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for being a father. You get it? So you can be, have the condition, one condition, but it's not sufficient. Or you can say a table having four sides is necessary, but not sufficient or not a sufficient condition for it to being square because you can have a rectangular square. So Rome declared that faith is necessary for justification. Faith is called the foundation. However, works must be added to this faith for justification to occur. The righteousness must be infused into the soul through baptism. The sinner must cooperate with and assent to this righteousness for that to happen. So missing from this Roman Catholic formula for justification is the crucial word alone, faith alone, sola fide. This is this is simple word, one word, but it made a whole lot of a difference, including for us today. The reformers insisted that justification by grace alone, by faith alone, and is through Christ alone. So let's look at that a bit briefly. Uh, by faith alone. Um, while Rome maintains that the instrument cause for justification is baptism, the reformers insisted that the cause or the instrumental cause, the way by which we receive justification is not by baptism, but by faith. In our justification, faith is the means by which we are linked to Christ and receive the benefits of his saving work. By faith, we receive the transfer or the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. This is how we become righteous, by believing that the righteousness of Christ has been transferred from Christ onto us. Faith is not only a necessary condition, it is a sufficient condition for Christ's righteousness to be imputed to us. Faith, true faith that is, is all that is required to be justified by the righteousness of Christ. Uh, read with me Galatians 2.16. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. The justification that we have is not by works. It's not something that we can gain. It's something that we receive that is transferred to us, to us by believing in the work of Christ. Luther and the Reformers insisted that they were justified by a righteousness that is not in us, but outside of us. The Roman Catholic Church was teaching that righteousness comes from within, it's infused in us, it's, 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 it's embedded in us, we just have to sort of uncover it. While the reformers were saying that it's righteousness that we need to be justified before God comes from outside. It's alien to us, we are strangers to it. We can never produce it, we can never attain it on our own. It is the legal application of this righteousness to us by which we are declared just. Uh, the charge was that this is, Rome was saying that this is a legal fiction. You can't, you can't say that you have justification that is not yours. But it's, there's nothing illegal about that because Christ is righteous. 
Christ died on the cross, his work on the cross was sufficient to take away our sins. And in his grace, he has made his righteousness available to us. And he has transferred this onto us. And that's why we can say that this is something that we have and we can enjoy. Uh, as, we, as, as, we, as was symbolized in the Old Testament, our sins are transferred to Christ by imputation, not by infusion. God counted Christ's suffering as worthy sacrifice or satis satisfaction for our guilt. Um, so, if, if it's by faith that we're justified and it's not by works and it's by faith alone, what kind of faith are we talking about? Is it any, any faith would work? Is it just, you know, your best intentions will do? Um, let's look at two passages that shed light on this. Uh, in your outline, uh, there are two passages in your little groups. Uh, spend a couple of minutes on, the, on those two passages and see what sort of faith um, you understand to be in question here. What is Romans talking about? What is James talking about? couple of minutes, if you can do that in groups. All right, well, if, if, if you had a chance, there's a lot, I'm sure you can spend more time on this, but if you have a chance to look at, to, at both of them, it would seem at first reading that Paul in, in Romans 3 is talking about salvation is by faith, while James in, in his letter talking about salvation is by works. Um, it's, it's not that these two things are at odds with each other. Rather, they're talking about same concept, but from different perspective. On one hand, uh, James says the man is justified by works, uh, not by faith alone. On the other, Paul says we are justified by faith apart from works. And to make it a bit more complicated, they're both pointing to the example of Abraham as the, the example of how a person is justified. So while both of them are using the same language of justification, they're talking about different matters. Paul is, is explaining the doctrine of justification here. He's making it clear that it's by faith and not by works. He is looking to Genesis 15 when God called Abraham and God gave him the covenant or the promise and, and Abraham believed. And uh, Paul argues that Abraham was justified before he performed any of the works of obedience. James, on the other hand, appeals to Genesis 22. If you're familiar with that, that's when God has told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. And here Abraham is justified, but in another sense. Uh, James is, is pointing, is trying to answer a different question sort of than what Paul was trying to answer. If you have the Bible still open to James, look at verse 14. 2.14. This is the question that's guiding James's uh, argument. The question is, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? See, James is asking, what kind of faith is saving faith? He makes it clear that no one is justified by mere profession of faith. Just saying that you believe is not sufficient, is not enough. That's not the faith that we're talking about. Anybody can say that they have faith. But saying it and having it are not the same thing. True faith always manifests itself in works. If no works follow from faith, then that faith is dead. It is useless. Abraham, 
demonstrated his faith by his works. He showed he had true faith by thus justifying himself when he, uh, when he put uh, his son Isaac on the altar. And Paul argues that Abraham was already justified before God in Genesis 15. He didn't need to demonstrate that to us. We don't see it, but God sees it. Uh, God is able to read the heart. We are not. The only way we can see another person's faith is by observing their works. So you get the difference? It's not that works that saves us, but works that are the result of faith. That's, that's the kind of faith we're talking about. The issue is genuine faith. And the reformers put it this way. Justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. I'll say that again. Justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. That is, true faith is never alone. It always manifests itself in works. It always produces fruit. Works that flow out of faith, however, are not the way or the ground for our justification. We should not confuse those two things together. Just because our faith should produce works doesn't mean that we're saved by works. Um, <clears throat> the only ground or basis of justification is the merit of Christ, what Christ has done. Nor is our faith itself I mean, uh, uh, something that deserves the merit. Faith is a gift of God's grace. And imagine you'll be, we'll be looking at that. You'll be looking at that. And you look at uh, by grace alone. Because even faith can... You know, you might think that it's something that you do, but even faith is a gift from God. Um, and I imagine you'll look, be looking at this uh, when you're looking at the sola by, by grace alone. If no works follow from our profession of faith, this proves that our faith is not alive, but is what Calvin called imaginary faith, imaginary semblance. Um, again, just to stress that there's a difference between faith and works. So to summarize... For Rome, justification is the result of faith plus works. In Reformed theology, justification is the result of faith alone, a faith that always produces work. Works. So what happens to sin? Um, if, if, it's, if our sin are, are, are removed, if we have this righteousness and it's through faith, what happens to our sins? Um, in a basic sense, the remission of sins involves the sending away of sin. When we're talking about our, uh, the, the righteousness of God uh, being imputed on us, it's being transferred to us. At the same time, we're talking about our sins being transferred onto Christ. When Christ died on the cross, our sins have been laid on him, and he carried the weight of that. And in exchange, he has also given us his righteousness. What happens to our sins? God does not bring them to memory anymore. He does not call them. Um, read Isaiah 43:25. I, even I, it's on the sheet, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. God chooses to forget or not remember these sins. They're not in his accounts anymore. Uh, Colossians 2, 12 to 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your heart and your flesh, 
God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. God, by dying on the cross, the righteous person, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, has taken away our sin and given us his righteousness. It's as if he reset our accounts. We have no sin anymore. Uh, we only have righteousness. God does not see us as sinners. He sees us through Christ, and we have this righteousness of Christ. Um, again, there's no contradiction here. To us, we are sinners, and we will continue on sinning. But to God, the way God sees us is through Jesus Christ and the righteousness of Christ. John Calvin, Calvin summarized it this way. Justification by faith is reconciliation with God. And this consists solely in the remission of sins. For if those whom the Lord has reconciled to himself are estimated by works, they will still prove to be in reality sinners, while they ought to be pure and free from sin. It is evident, therefore, that the only way in which those whom God embraces are made righteous is by having their pollutions wiped away by the remission of sins, so that this justification may be termed in one word, the remission of sins. Um, this is good news to us. This is very helpful to us because not only do we not have to work hard to it, we don't have to earn it, but because it gives us assurance. Uh, it makes us aware that our relationship with God, that declaration, that justification, is not based on anything good in us, it's not based on anything that we do, but based on God and what God has done, and it is permanent, uh, it is eternal, uh, because it's based on the righteousness of Christ. Uh, to conclude, there are three things uh, can help us, uh, the, the, why the doctrine of justification of faith can help us today, how, or how it can help us today. Uh, first, uh, it can kill our pride. Um, we don't have to be proud of what we do, we have, because our work can never produce righteousness that is sufficient to appease God. So by relying on Christ, by relying on justification, by your faith alone, uh, there is no place for pride. Second, this gives us assurance because it's based on the work of Christ, not our works. We know that it's permanent. It's always there for us. It is, it is pleasing to God because he is the justifier and he is satisfied with this righteousness. Finally, it makes, it, it makes Christian life possible. It's possible to live free. It's possible to live a life of worship. It's possible to praise God. Uh, and not be driven by guilt and shame because that has been taken away by the cross. Uh, it's a remarkable doctrine. It's something that the more you reflect on it, the deeper you'll appreciate it, and you'll have more uh, love and for God and for his work. Uh, and uh, I pray that it's something that you can study further. Uh, I've put some couple of resources there for you to look into. Uh, they're... Uh, very reader-friendly, uh, divided into smaller chapters. That's helpful for you. And they explain things from the basic to advanced level. Um, so take a look at those. And if you have any questions, uh, be happy to answer them. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you because 
righteousness is available to us. It's not because of anything good in us. It's not because of something that we can earn, but rather because of what Christ has done on the cross. Thank you for this eternal sacrifice that takes away our sin, our guilt and our shame, and gives us righteousness, your righteousness, God. And we pray that this is available to us through faith, faith in Christ, faith in the work of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that this would be the position of everyone here in this room. I pray that everybody would uh, be inclined to put their trust in you and to put their salvation and their future destiny in your hand and to trust you, Lord, to provide that. Thank you for making it available. We pray that, uh, Lord, that this truth would, uh, would, would, would sit in our hearts and would uh, make its way to our actions as well so that we can, through our works and through our words, declare you a righteous God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.